All right, tonight, uh, I've titled my message, Seeing What God Sees. That's not God, um, nor is it Ben Affleck. I thought it was Ben Affleck at first. I decided it's not. It's just a guy who's, I think he's hoping to see what God sees. He wants to see what God sees. Or, and here's the thing, I, I, I put a subtext or subtitle on tonight, and that is, or who is my enemy? Seeing what God sees, or who is my enemy? Uh, who is my enemy? You guys might remember, some of you, that's, that's not a, a title original to me. That's actually the title of a book by um, Vineyard Pastor Rich Nathan about 10 years ago, and, and several of us at the time it came out read that in small groups and went through it um, together. Th- those two things might seem disconnected to you. Maybe they don't, you know, what, what's that? You know, they, don't, they seem kind of not really the same, but they, I hope that they go hand in hand. We'll kind of see as we go. That's, that's my, my hope. Here's why I say that, because sometimes, I know you guys probably aren't like this, but sometimes I get thinking about things. And, and I think of things, and I get kind of different thoughts going on, and, and they, they seem to connect in my mind, and I think they actually do connect, but I'm not sure. So t- tonight's like that. We've been talking about the church the last few weeks, and, and, and this is kind of a continuation of that, kind of not. It's just some things I've been thinking about this last week, and, and I'll explain right now what what I'm thinking about so you kind of have a little better idea, and I hope it all makes sense in the end. But one of the things is, is this. I have been thinking a lot about, about poverty and about caring for the poor. Uh, and, and obviously with our, you know, Thanksgiving outreach is, I, I, it's the biggest thing we do during the year in terms of caring for the poor in our community. We do our ongoing ministry weekly, and we do the school supply drive in September, but I think this is the biggest single thing we do. And so we've been putting a lot of effort and a lot of energy and attention into that this last week, and I was thinking a lot about it. But I've also been just in my reading, reading some things that, you know, spark, spark my thoughts. And, I, and I, I, I'm not thinking just about, you know, what it means to care for the poor, but I've been thinking a little bit about sort of the bigger picture of that. And, and some of our attitudes and our beliefs about the poor and about what causes poverty and, and why people are living in poverty. And so I, I kind of want to address that maybe over the next couple of weeks, but begin at least touching on that a little bit tonight. That's another, you know, one thing I've been thinking about. But the other thing is this, is sort of the, the polarization of people, and, and particularly, you know, us. And I don't mean us here, but our country. And, and again, I, I suppose... With the election coming up, that's in focus. We are a polarized people. And I don't know about you guys. I'll just be glad when it's over. You know what I mean? I get to the point where I just go, just let it be over, please. You know, um, so, so much division and, and so, so much polarization. And, you know, that, that exists uh, clearly on that sort of political level. But it exists on so many other levels in our society as well. And one of those is sort of that socioeconomic thing about poverty. There, there is the, the polarization between the rich and the poor. And, and that gap is ever widening. I read somewhere this week um, that the gap between the rich and the poor has grown three times over, 300% in the last 25 years in this country. Four times in the last 50 years worldwide but three times over in 25 years. So I was thinking, okay, that's what, what is that, 1987 or so? Um, 
you know, that's not, that doesn't seem that long ago to me, you know, the 80s. And since the 80s, that gap has grown that, that, that far. And there's an increasing, I think, polarization there. And sometimes may, maybe that political polarization and that socioeconomic polarization sort of run together. And, and there are some, some thoughts and, and maybe judgments or whatever that, that sort of continue to, to separate people. So then the third thing is this, and this is kind of, I guess, what I'm always thinking about, and that is, what is the kingdom perspective on all of this? As kingdom people, is, is there a way that we can look at these issues that might be unique and different than the way that they are perceived in, in general in, in our culture? And, and so uh, all of that has sort of been on my mind this week, and I'm going to try to bring that together uh, into a message titled, Seeing What God Sees or Who Is My Enemy?, um, so we need to pray. Let's pray. I want to do this tonight. This is a little different than we usually do. I want to pray one of my favorite prayers, and it's from the chapter, uh, first chapter of Ephesians. I'm going to read it to you, and then I'll just pray it. Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And so, Lord, we ask tonight for that same spirit of wisdom and revelation, wisdom that comes from you, not from the heart of man, but from you, and revelation of who you are and how beautiful and glorious and precious you are. And we pray that you would bestow those things upon us so that we might know you better, God, that we would see you and feel you and hear you and, and touch you and experience you and know your presence in a new and a deeper way. And we ask, Lord, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts. We want to see what you see. We want to see the world as you see it. We want to see people as you see them. And, and, Lord, we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we would know uh, beyond any shadow of doubt the hope that you've called us to, that we would know the riches of the inheritance we have in your people, and that we would know the surpassing greatness of your power that's at work in our lives every moment of every day. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So I want to I start tonight with, the, uh, just as a, a kind of a launching pad, an Old Testament verse. Uh, and, and those of you that have been around remember, just about a year ago, a little over a year ago, I did a, a three-week series on this verse from Micah. I talked about uh, each of these three things in quite a bit of depth, but I just want to, again, reference it really quickly tonight. Uh, Micah 6.8 says, He has shown all you people, and that's the TNIV, so if you're familiar with that saying, if you memorize the saying, all, shown you, O man, uh, the TNIV includes the ladies, uh, shown all you people what is good. And what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy? and to walk humbly with your God. So Micah poses a question, what does the Lord require of you? Uh, and, and that's sort of kind of the launching pad for what I want to talk about tonight. What does the Lord require of us? And then, of course, he immediately answers the question, and he, he lists three things that are required. The first is to act justly, and so that is to live our lives out in such a way that alleviates injustice, that, that dissipates injustice and inequity. It's not to just or simply believe 
injustice or to stand up for justice and say justice is the right thing that you know but it but it really is to live our life to organize our life in such a way that that promotes justice that promotes and manifests uh, e- equity equality justice uh, in our day-to-day interactions all right so it's to live justly and then to love mercy forgiveness is uh, certainly a part of mercy, and we talked recently about forgiveness in quite a bit of depth, but I think mer- to, to love mercy would not only be to forgive, but also to respond compassionately to those in need, to respond compassionately to people that we encounter in life, to those that I think Jesus would call the harassed and helpless, to see what he sees and to be merciful, to, to really embrace and love mercy and be merciful towards them. And then um, the third thing is to walk humbly with your God. Uh, walk in sort of, you know, it's, it's been, a, we've adopted that term in Christianese. Uh, you know, our, our walk really means our life, doesn't it? People say, how's your walk with the Lord? What, what does that mean? How's your walk with the Lord? What is that? Well, I think really what it means is how's your life? Because it's not just, oh, well, I have my devotional time in five minutes in the morning or 30 minutes in the morning. That's it. No, it's really, to, our walk is our, is our whole life. And so to walk humbly, I think, means to live humbly. To live humbly, to me, is, is huge because it means, first of all, to not have an attitude of superiority or arrogance. I, I don't, if I walk humbly, look down on anyone else for who they are. Uh, and it also means that I don't have a, an attitude of, of judgmentalism. I don't think of myself as being, uh, you know, better than anyone else because of who they are in life, their station in life, uh, the, the circumstances of, of their life. And it also means to be free from self-righteousness. I, I don't believe in any way, and I'm not saying I don't, I'm just saying if I walk humbly, means I don't believe that my faith or my relationship with Christ necessarily makes me any better than you either. So to walk humbly really is to be in that place of, of living my life out in, in humility and understanding that we really are all created by God. We are all his children. We are all loved by him. And, and I really am not any better than you or anybody else. And so according to the Old Testament prophet Micah, that's what the Lord requires of you, of me, of all of us. That's what the Lord requires is, is those three things. So it's kind of interesting to me. I, I, I was wondering... If we were to pose that question to Christians today, what does the Lord require of you? What would be the response? Now, I think, if, I think you'd have to be tricky. You'd have to rephrase it a little bit because I think if you said, what does the Lord require of you? People, most people were, would be familiar enough with the verse to pick up on what you're saying and say, well, these three things. But if you phrase that a little differently, if you just kind of said, and maybe surveyed people, uh, you know, what is it that God uh, expects of you? What does God want from you? I, I think we would get a diversity of answers. I don't know if we would get that very much. I think a lot of the answers would uh, probably uh, lean towards sort of h- how you get saved. How, how do you become a Christian? I think people would say, well, you, you, you pray a prayer and you accept 
Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's what God requires. That might be an answer you get. Uh, things like that. You might get something about believing the right things. You have to believe the right things. You have to have the right doctrine and, and really understand the, the Scripture. You have to believe the right things. That's what God requires of you. Um, you might get some behavioral answers as well, and depending on who you ask, I think those would be spun positively or negatively. You know, some people would immediately go to the things you shouldn't do. Well, what the Lord requires is that you don't get involved in, you know, any of the really bad sins, and you might have those listed out. Others might say, well, what God requires is that we, you know, and there's a whole list of things. Pray and read your Bible and go to church and tithe and, you know, whatever. Everybody would have their own list, but those things. Um, So I I tend to think, and again, I've never done this, so I don't know. Maybe I'm um, missing the mark here, but I don't know. By and large, it's just in the evangelical church in the in you know Western church or in the United States today or whatever. Um, if if we would get that answer to, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God, but that really now that's Micah's answer to his own question. He asked and answered, but it's also really the Bible's answer. It really is the Bible's answer. Really. Um, front to back, beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, that's the response of Scripture. Scripture really says throughout, it's, it's, it's fairly clear that that's what God really does require of us. There are over 400 different passages, distinct passages, that deal with poverty and greed and wealth and the responsibility of God's people towards those that live in poverty. There are over 3,000 specific verses dealing with those things. Greed is the second most uh, referenced sin in the Bible. Uh, idolatry is the first. You could probably you know, make an argument that greed really is a form of idolatry and they would be sort of the same thing. But in either case, it's, it's a prominent perspective in the Bible. By comparison, and let me just just make a comparison. I I don't want to ruffle anybody's feathers necessarily. Today, if you think about our culture today, there's a a lot of, I mean, I just don't hear a lot of people up in arms. I don't hear a lot of Christians up in arms about greed and and really caring for those in need. I just don't. I do hear, on the other hand, a a lot of churches, uh, Christians, sort of something, you know, kind of gay rights and and gay marriage is a big issue. It's, it's becoming a huge issue in our culture today, and it's a huge issue in the church today. There are about six verses that deal with homosexuality in the Bible. So I'm not saying that homosexuality is right. I'm not condoning it. Don't hear me say that. I'm not saying that there's a comparison between the two. I'm simply saying in terms of perspective of the Scripture and the perspective and the mindset of Western Christians, that seems to be a bigger issue. There's about six verses than an issue that there are literally 3,000 verses dealing with. So do you, do you follow me there? Um, that is the Bible's answer. That is the perspective of Scripture. In terms of what does God require of His people, it, it really is those things. It's all throughout. Uh, it's, all, it's all over the Bible. It's, it's from the beginning to end. God requires His people to practice justice. God requires His people to have a heart for the poor, to care for those in need, to consider those that are less fortunate themselves and to reach out to them, to, to take care of the widows and the orphans and people who, who have been in an otherwise and other ways forgotten, the sick and the lonely in, in Scripture, to feed the hungry, to shelter the homeless, to take care of people in need. That's really what the Bible says we should be doing as His people. 
And it's not uh, limited to just th- this verse. It really is all throughout. Now, <coughs> I know, um, and maybe you guys aren't thinking this. Maybe you don't. I, I, to me, I, I, I read a lot, and so I, I, I hear different perspectives. And maybe you're not as aware or you don't hear these things as much. I can almost hear the argument to what I'm saying right now, coming back. And the argument would be something like this, that, well, are you advocating salvation by works? Is that what you're saying? That, that God requires these things, so I have to earn my salvation. I have to be good. I, I have to do these things. God's grace is free. God's grace is free. And, and we really aren't required to do anything except receive him to be saved and to enter in his kingdom. That, that's really all we have to do is have faith, believe in God, and we receive him, and that's it. That is true. That is absolutely true. Um, that's stated throughout the New Testament as well, uh, but very clearly and specifically in Ephesians 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We are saved grace through faith, not by works. The, um, I think the standard sort of, the kind of standard interpretation, maybe the, the, the um, uh, I'm just going to say the standard interpretation of that is something like this today. Um, if I believe in Jesus, then I get to go to heaven, and I won't have to go to hell, and that's good. And that's what's required of me. That's it. That's it. Um, I heard somebody recently uh, call that, this, this was their analogy, they called that Titanic theology. Titanic theology is this, the Titanic is sinking, and what really matters is that I get in a lifeboat. And that's kind of what that theology says. The ship's going down, I got to get off the ship. And that's the most important thing, that's really what matters well, I, I hope that, my, I have loved ones, I have people I care about, I kind of hope they get in a lifeboat too, and I'll, I'll probably wait around a little while to try to help them get in, but, but at the end of the day, if they don't, it's kind of their choice, and I, you know, as long as I get in my lifeboat, that's really what matters. And it's sort of every man for himself, it's, it's kind of, a, you know, I mean, crudely put, it's sort of a save-your-own-butt theology. And I think, I think that is uh, not only sort of, self-centered, it's very individualistic. It's really about me. And, and, and sometimes that sort of thinking I hear in different circles is that way. It's very individualistic, very about me. And my, my estimation is that kind of runs contrary to the nature of God. I, th- I don't think God is individualistic at all. I think he thinks about the big picture. He wants everybody involved. And I, and I also believe that God causes us to not just be concerned about ourselves, but really to be concerned about others in a, in a, in a very profound and deep way. And I want to look at the next verse. This is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I want to look at verse 10. It says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The word for is important because it's a connective word. It, it really does connect the previous verses and the previous thought to, to this thought. Um, we're not saved by good works. That's true. But we are saved for good works. Now, 
it's, it's, again, back to the previous verse, it's all God. It's not, of the good works are not of my own doing either. They're, they're, they're from him, and, and they're not anything that I can boast in in any way, shape, or form. They, they are from God, but I am saved by grace through faith for those good works. God has a purpose for me. It's his intention and for you that, that we really would live our lives justly and compassionately and humbly you know, in, in the care and love of others in, in his name. Now, it says here that he prepared those things in advance for us to do. Two comments on that. I, I, I love this verse. It's always been one of my favorites for, for, for many, many years. The, the first thing I want to say about the, the good works being prepared in advance is this, that that's, it's plan A. That's plan A. That's God's plan. That's always been God's plan. That's been God's plan from the very beginning is that his people would be saved by, by, by grace through faith to care for people, to care for others, to do those things. That, that's what God intended from the very beginning. That's not an afterthought. It's not an addendum. It's not a, a anything except plan A. That's what God has intended his people to be for from the very beginning of time to now. From creation forward, God said, I want my people to be actively engaged in caring for others and doing these things that he calls here good work. Second thing about this that I really like is they're prepared beforehand or prepared in advance for us to do. I think that good works are, are out there. That God has already prepared them and that they're waiting for us and that if we see what God sees if we begin to hear his voice if we begin to follow the leading of his spirit day by day that we encounter those good works and we we might if we weren't aware walk right by him and not see him but in his spirit and in his presence we see those things and we engage in 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 conversation or or in some act you know whatever whatever it is like i said last week it could be an encouraging word or a smile towards somebody it could be a homeless bag that you hand somebody on the freeway it could be any one of a million things that god has prepared for us that if we're conscious and aware of in his spirit we can we can we can act upon that we might miss otherwise i think that to me that's just exciting i think that's exciting I think you start the day by praying, God, what, what do you got for me today? What's out there? What, what might, you know, do you have something for me today? And just open your heart and spend a little time listening and praying and wondering what, what does God have for me today? So my, my point is simply you can't separate 8 and 9 from 10. Yes, we are saved by grace. Yes, that is through faith. No, that is, that is not anything of our own. It's all from God, but it's for the purpose of carrying out his purpose and his will in, in and through the lives of others in the, in the world today. I, I think... Sometimes, sort of, you know, the contemporary thing in the church is, is Titanic theology. The Titanic is sinking, jump ship. Let me just say this. God loves the earth. He loves, God never gave up on this. I, I think we give given up sometimes. And, and God never gave up on this little piece of real estate that we call home. God loves it. And he says, I intend to, to create a whole new heaven and a new earth and a salvation that includes all of it. It's the whole enchilada. You get it all. It's, it's all going to be redeemed by my spirit in my time. And I haven't given up on it. And, and, and I really think that what he's called us to do is not so much bail off, but to be the captains of the ship, to right the ship, to, to, to get the ship back on course, to, to extend, to call, call out for God's kingdom to come 
you know, on earth, heaven, right here and now today, to do those things that he's given us to do and to confront those things that are, that are contrary to that, the injustices that we see around us, to, to live, you know, live uh, justly, to love mercy, to, to love compassion, to walk in compassion, and to walk in humility. And I think, and here's where the kind of the beginning that things sort of tie together, I, I hope. I think one of the reasons that we don't see that more, and that, that doesn't happen more, and it does happen, and I'm not, un, I'm not undermining or, or, or making light of the, the ways in which it does happen, but I, I think it could happen more. That's all I'm saying. And one of the reasons it doesn't is this, that I think we make judgments about one another that are, that are largely informed more by cultural norms than Scripture. We make judgments about one another that, that are much more informed by culture than they are by Scripture. And those judgments prohibit us at times from entering into the justice and compassion that God's called us to. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Let me just see if you've ever heard anything like this. The reason that poor people are poor is because they're lazy. They're just lazy. And if they would get jobs, then they wouldn't be poor. If they would just go get a job, and if they would stop doing drugs, because that's what they do, is they just do drugs and lay around and watch TV and eat bonbons and have babies so that they can get welfare, and that's why they're poor. And if they would just stop doing that and they would be more like me, then they wouldn't be poor. I don't know. Ever heard that? I have. I've heard that many times. There's a judgment, I think, very often in the hearts of people towards the poor that's informed by culture more than Scripture because I don't think Scripture says that. Now, let me say this. In all fairness, I think that those judgments go both ways. I think the poor sometimes, or often those who are in solidarity with the poor, have those same judgments against the rich. I watched a movie uh, this last week. You guys ever seen this movie called Machine Gun Preacher? Anybody seen it? I'm not necessarily recommending it. It's a, it's a little graphic at times, but it's a good story. It's a true story. It's a true story. It's very contemporary. It happens modern, like right now. It's happening right now, and it's a true story about a guy named Sam Childers. Sam Childers is a biker. I guess he's still a biker, but he's a bad dude. He's not like a 21st century uh, kinder, you know, there's like, now it's like a kind, there's kinder, gentler bikers out there. I think back when, like in the 70s, guys retired, they'd get a Corvette. Now they get a Harley. And so you've got retired guys that got their motorcycle mom and they ride down to the coast on the weekend. He's not that kind of biker. He's the old school, you know, hell's angel kind of biker. And, and he's actually, his job was a, what they call the shotgunner. And a shotgunner is exactly what the name implies. He carries a sawed-off shotgun and shoots people. He's an armed guard for drug runners. So guys are dealing drugs. This guy is their bodyguard, right? That's who he is. He's a, he's a bad, bad person who did bad, bad things. And when you do bad things like that, you go to jail. That's what you do. And he ended up in jail. So while he's in jail, of course, his wife becomes a Christian. His wife becomes a Christian. And he gets out of jail, and she takes him to church. Little country church. I can't remember where they are, what state they're in, but he goes to this little church and becomes a Christian. And it's, a, it's such a... I, it really it touched me because I thought it's, it's, 
a classic story of like the things that I think don't really happen, but it really happened. Guest speaker one night is this guy, he's a pastor from Africa. And he comes and he begins to talk about things happening in his country. And so what does this guy do? He goes to Africa. And he's a contractor, that's what he does, because he can't shoot people anymore, so now he's a contractor. And they're going to build a school, so he goes to Africa to build this school, and while he's there, he sees what's happening. And you guys have read about Joseph Coney, and is it the LRA, is that right? But these children are being abducted, and they're, and, they're, and they're being sold into slavery. And he sees all this, and he sees how these missionaries are, are trying to, to fight against this, but it's, 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 it seems like a losing battle. And he really gets captivated. His heart gets captivated by the whole thing. So he goes back to Africa, and he starts to build this orphanage, and he gets more and more involved. But then here's what, here's what happens towards the end. He, he gets so focused on what he's doing that, that he really kind of goes off the edge a little bit. And he comes home to his church, and he's preaching at his church, and he says, how can you call yourself Christians? These people are dying, and they're being abducted, and you sit here in your comfortable homes, and you let it happen. And he's screaming at them. I'm like, wow, man, that's, that's a little intense. That's a bit much. If I were to do that, let me know. Uh, but then it all comes to a head. It kind of peaks. He's at home one night, and he's trying to buy a new truck to use in his work in Africa. He's trying to get these different businessman to, to give him money to buy a truck. And his daughter comes to him. His daughter's in school. She wants to go to high school prom. And her friends, all her friends are getting together, and they're going to they're gonna rent a limousine to go to prom, right? And she says, Dad, my friends are getting this limo. Can I can we, can we, can we, can we get, get the limo so I can go with my friends to prom? And he goes, what do you mean asking me for a limo? How can you ask for a limo? And I need a truck to help kids in Africa. And he just yells at his daughter, and she cries and walks away. And you, and you realize he's got these judgments in his heart against people that are, that are not resolving the problem. And, and that's the only reason I, I tell you that, is that those judgments that we have against other people, regardless of which side of the spectrum, regardless of what we judge, those things don't solve the problem. Those things really are, judgments really are arrogance. They're really prideful. They're not humility. And that's sort of what happened to him. John Wimber used to say something that I loved. He would say, you don't know what you don't know. He said that to me a few times. You don't know what you don't know. And that was his way of saying, you need a little bit of humility in your life. You, you, don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't know what you don't know. And I think, here's my point, is I think some of that spills over into our lives and into the political arena, into our thinking about culture today, uh, you, you know, kind of across the board. Here, here's the thing. I mean, look, I, golly, I, I, favor, I favor a compassionate political environment. That's what I favor. That's what I'm for. I, I, I'm for a political system that considers the big picture, that considers families, that considers the poor, that considers children and people and what's best for everyone, not just what's best for me. But that said, that said, I am fully aware, I fully believe that no governmental system, no, no governmental program is ever going to fix all the social problems in the world today. It's, it's, it, it does, it, I, I think you could take the best and brightest, if you got the smartest people in the world, and you brought them together and said, we want to we solve hunger and poverty and injustice in the world today. And we want you guys to come together and just pour your, your, your lives into this. And he said, you know, here's a, here's a boatload of money to back it up. Come up with a solution. I just don't think they could do it. I don't think any government program can solve those problems. And, 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 and this is the reason. The reason is that... that the, the core issue to me 
is, is oppression, that there's an oppression that's, that's, that's over us and that we don't see that. And, and we, think, we, we think the problem is them, right, if you, whoever they are. You know, it's the Democrats, they're the ones, it's the Republicans, it's the blacks, it's the whites, it's the rich, it's the poor. It's, it's there, it's, it's, if, if everyone would agree with me and do things the way I want them to be done, we could solve this problem, right? Do we, do we ever think that? Yeah, sure we do, of course we do. We think if everyone would think like I think and do what I say, then we could fix this. But here's the thing, the problem is not people. And the people that we polarize ourselves against are not the enemy. And, and, and as long as, see, here's the thing. <laughs> the idea is the enemy wants us to think that they are the enemy. And as long as we think they are the enemy, he wins. The enemy laughs all the way to the bank. He gets his way because that's his plan A. His plan A is if I can get you guys to argue and fight amongst yourselves, you'll, you'll never see what's really at hand here. You'll never see what's really taking place. I want to continue in Ephesians, but we're going to skip ahead a little bit. Chapter 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. This world really is oppressed by spiritual rulers and forces and authorities that hold it captive. And insofar as we allow ourselves to be at odds with one another, we fall prey to those authorities and rulers because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. I, I've seen this. It's so clear to me. And I think, you know, you know when things are up close, it's hard. And, and, and sometimes we don't see this thing in our country because we live here. When I go to Nicaragua, and, and we talked about Nicaragua earlier tonight and taking this trip, and you guys know I've been involved there. We've been involved for almost 10 years, and I've probably been there I don't know how many times now. And the oppression that, that rests over that country is so clear to me now. After I've been there a few, a few times, I, I can almost smell it. I mean, it's, 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 it's palpable. It's tangible. It's in the air. I can feel it. I can see it in people's eyes. It's just, they're just, it's an oppressed people. It's an oppressed people. You know, you, on one hand, you go there and you go, man, this is just, it is, this is the most beautiful country. It's so beautiful. It's, I mean, unbelievable natural resources. Two coastlines. It's, it's like a jewel. It's like this little jewel, you know, this huge lake in the middle. Beautiful people that are so warm and so hospitable and gracious. You know, these beautiful people in this beautiful country. But it's so oppressed. There's just this oppression that just sort of rests on it. You know? And, and here's the thing. It's, on one level, it's the same. It's the same everywhere because everybody blames somebody else for the problem. It's the Sandinistas. No, it's the Somoza regime. They don't, you know, it's, it's funny. They're, they don't have two parties. They have like 15 parties. And so everybody blames everybody. It's out of control. So a lot of them just blame us. It's, it's the U.S. That's why we're in this situation. And, 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 and it's all this finger pointing and, and all this blaming, the truth is, it's the enemy. It's the enemy. It's not flesh and blood. It just rests on it. Those same rulers and authorities and power, and I don't know if they're the same ones or different ones, but those, you know, that same spiritual oppression that rests on this country at times rests on that country as well. Now, I don't mean that people aren't involved. People are involved because we all are, 
we, we, we are all morally responsible agents, right? We all have free will. Do you know that, that uh, neither, neither God nor the devil can take away your free will? Did you know that? You get to make a choice. The old Flip Wilson thing, which one or two of you will remember, you know, he said, the devil made me do it. Well, that's bad theology. The devil didn't make you do it. The devil may have influenced you. He may have persuaded you. He may have manipulated you, but he didn't make you do it because you, you ultimately make those decisions on your own. So I'm not saying that people aren't involved. People are, but I think we get blinded, and we begin to say that people are the problem, that people are the enemy. And again, it's, it's, it's the other people. It's never us. It's the other party. It's the other people. It's the rich. It's the poor. It's the black. It's the white. It's the Republicans. It's the Democrats. And I, I just want to say, if it's flesh and blood, it's not the enemy. If it's flesh and blood, it's someone that Jesus died for and that we should not be fighting against, but we should be fighting for. And we should be fighting against those rulers and powers and authorities for that person that Jesus died for. Not fighting against that. And, and here's how we do that. Here, how do we fight that battle? This is how. It, it's, it, by, re, by refusing to make them the enemy. By refusing to make them the enemy. By tearing down those walls of polarization and, and striving for reconciliation in whatever form that takes. Whether that's Racial, economic, political, whatever, whatever form it takes. Not playing the game. Don't let the enemy win. Don't, don't make those people, don't let anyone else become the enemy. Insist, insist upon, in the name of Jesus, loving the people that you disagree with. I, insist upon serving them. Insist upon it. Make, make it happen. We have to... It begins, and this is my point tonight by seeing what God sees. And I would just encourage you, maybe start there, pray that prayer. Lord, would you enlighten the eyes of my heart and allow me to see a little bit of what you see. And when you look at somebody, instead of the judgment that immediately comes into your heart and mind uh, in human nature, and I'm not blaming you guys, we, we all have them, I have them. Just ask God, let me see that person as you see them. Who are they to you? Who's that person in your kingdom? And, and look at them that way. I think... We, we need to change our belief system, but it doesn't end there. I think it really has to trans, transfer into our lives and, and, and be, be meaningful. So I don't know if that made sense or not, but just pray. God, let me see what you see. Let, let's stand. Enough of my ranting. Hey, uh, Ron, would you come up? I want to close the prayer tonight. Um, you know, if you'd like prayer tonight, I just sometimes... I think some of you guys would like to get prayed for, and for whatever reason, you don't. And I don't know why. Sometimes I think, I know there's people here that want prayer. So don't be shy. All right? So we're going to, I'll pray. Ron will play something sweet. And uh, our prayer team will come up to the front. And uh, as we just worship and take a minute or two, I'd invite you to come up for prayer. If you anything at all, if you're sick, we want to pray for you. If if there's things going on in your life, if you're anxious and concerned, if I don't know, some of you might have economic issues right now happening in your lives. I don't know what's going on, but let's just pray for you. So Lord, let your spirit come. Would you just touch our hearts tonight with your freedom and your grace? And I pray that you would give us eyes to see, Lord, and maybe just people want prayer for that. Help us to know who our enemy really is and to see what you see. Help us to expose the way of the enemy by loving our, 
our enemies as well as our friends, those that we disagree with as well as our neighbors. But come, Holy Spirit. 